welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to spend a little bit more time in verse 18 before in later times, so we get into the balance of, the, of this uh, section of Scripture. But we're going to spend a little time, uh, more time this Sunday on the implications of the first part of 1 John 2.18 about the times that are yet to come. Hear with me the Word of God, John writing to the churches. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Would you pray with me, Father? I pray that in this time, the Holy Spirit will do the work that he was committed to by the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago to take eternal truths and make them momentarily clear to those whom the Spirit indwells, the believers who make up the church. Jesus promised that he would not leave the disciples as orphans, but he would come to them in the person of the Holy Spirit. He would send the Spirit, the Father would send the Spirit when Jesus had ascended, and the Holy Spirit would be in every believer. We're going to find out later in 1 John that we have the great teacher of the Scriptures dwelling within our being if we are born again. And because of that, the Scriptures are ours. Every portion of them. Old and New Testaments, obscure and clear. All of it is something that the Holy Spirit dwells within us to reveal. He reveals as we read and meditate and pray, but he also reveals, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, through the ministry of pastor teachers, those given to the church to open the word of God. I pray that both miracles will happen today in this teaching that the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer within the sound of my voice will move to reveal the truth, that he will connect scripture to scripture, text to text, truth to truth, and that your people may see what you want them to see. I pray also that you'll do that great miracle that I've been privileged to be a part of for decades, and that is in the hour of preaching, that through a pastor teacher you will do that work of instruction and edification of the body of Christ. Today, Lord, we touch on a topic of scripture that is prevalent throughout, but unfortunately in our day is hard to come across in modern preaching. The importance, the past, the present, and the future of your chosen people, Israel. And I pray that you will do a revelatory work in this time for your glory in Jesus name amen. amen thank you you can be seated as you know we started to look at this passage last time and 
I decided to spend uh, one full message on the very first part of this text where the Bible teaches in no uncertain terms that there will be a figure who comes upon world history who will be known in the Bible as the Antichrist. The scripture promises here in 1 John chapter 2 in the very first mentioning of him by name in the New Testament the Antichrist is coming. The early church knew this in absolute certainty and detail. So there will be a figure who will return. And uh, he will be returning in a time that John calls here the last hour. And he says it is the last hour. He said to the churches there in AD 90, gathered around his, his area of Ephesus, that the churches then, just some 60 years after the life and resurrection of Jesus, were in the last hour, and therefore we must know that we continue to be in the last hour. The last hour is also referred to in other places in the Bible as the last days. What are the last days? What is the last hour? We discovered last week that it is the span of time that began at the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven after his crucifixion and cross work and his resurrection. His ascension started what was known as the last hour or the last days. And those days will go all the way through future history. They've already covered past history since Christ's ascension. And they will end when he visibly returns to planet earth in revelation 19 you can read that story so it is a sweep of time they were in it we are in it it is called the last days and i believe due to what i believe prophecy teaches that we might be i can't say for sure but we might be in the final portion of the last days because i see so many great prophecies in scripture on the edge of fulfillment some of which we'll talk about today i believe that the next great biblical event in history i've told you a thousand times will be the rapture of the church that invisible coming of christ in the clouds to take God's people, the church, off of this earth just prior to a period of time called the tribulation, a seven-year period of time of judgment upon the earth and chastisement upon Israel so that there will be a great turning to Christ as well as the judgment of those who don't turn to him. And that will be finalized by the visible return of Jesus. Now, in the middle of that tribulation period, there will come to the height of his power, this individual that John promises will come, the Antichrist. We talked about his entire career last week. His career will begin when he strikes a false peace pact with Israel to begin the time of the seven-year tribulation. And his career will rise and come to a peak in the way that I described to you last time. The Bible tells us that he will persecute both believers and Jewish people for the last three and a half years of his terrible reign on the planet. Jews and believers will be the special object of his hatred and his murderous ways. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that most of the tribulation will turn on that powerful hatred he has for the Jewish nation and for biblical believers. And so if you read the book of Revelation and you understand the career of the Antichrist, as I was going over what I taught you and going over what I'm seeing 
prophecy tell us about what is coming, I thought I needed to spend a Sunday teaching you about one of the central aspects of what the Antichrist will do and who he will be involved with, and that is he will be involved with seeking to destroy Israel. As I looked at the passages and thought about the Antichrist's career and his passion to exterminate Israel in the last days and in the time of the tribulation, I thought how little understanding most evangelicals have about what the Bible teaches about Israel. In fact, I went back through my metal Rolodex. Some of you are old enough to know what a Rolodex is. I shot through my hard drive. I shot up into the cloud and researched all my files mentally over the, all the messages that I've listened to over the many years of my life, and I've been fortunate to be part of or pastoring Bible-teaching churches pretty much my whole Christian life. And I, I went over, I went into the cloud and looked through the files of my life, and I realized I don't think I've ever heard any pastor teach a standalone message on Israel. I don't think I'd ever heard any gathered, collected teaching on what the Bible teaches about the past, the present, and the future of Israel. Now, I had heard different pastors talk about how important Israel was to this part of prophecy or that part of the tribulation or the plan of God, and so I had an understanding of it, but that's only because of study and being involved in teaching for so many years. So I thought... I would do with you what somebody never did with me. I'm going to take a, a message today and I'm going to talk with you about the past, present, and future of the people, Israel. And I'm going to seek to place into your mind enough markers so that you can understand your Bible more clearly as you read through it and you understand prophecy more certainly as you may see it happen. So I'm going to talk about Israel as it relates to its past, present, and future, and I'm going to connect Israel at the end of my message to what the Antichrist will do in the future. Israel is a very important understanding to have. It is a key to understanding not only the prophetic future, but your entire understanding of the Bible. Did you know that Israel is mentioned by name 2,431 times in your Bible? Now, you would, you would, okay, you may need to know something about Israel, the people, the nation, the, the, the land, all of it, 2,431 times. It's mentioned by name in 34 of the 39 Old Testament books, but it is the subject of all 39 Old Testament books, obviously. But you say, well, it's just an Old Testament factor. Israel doesn't, doesn't factor into New Testament times. It's all about the church today. Israel's an afterthought. Really? Well, why do 13 of your 27 New Testament books mention Israel by name? Why does the book of Revelation, I mentioned this to you last time, and I actually got my number wrong, that there are over four, a little over 400 verses in the book of Revelation, and in those 400 verses, there are over 800 references to the Old Testament. If Old Testament truth is old news to modern Christians, what is it doing being mentioned over 800 times in the most future-relevant book in your New Testament? And what's, what's at the heart of the mention of the Old Testament? It has been and always will be Israel. So it's a key for you to understand your Bible. But as I already shared with you, it is seldom taught from pulpits. 
In fact, today, more than any other time in the history of the church, well, maybe in the, in, in, in the times before, well, any, I, I could get into history, but I won't. But even today, it is quite ignored among pastors and teachers. Many even teach, when Israel is brought up, that, that God is finished with Israel. His plans for them no longer exist. Israel forfeited the right to be part of whatever God would do. And he's now working in a different plan with the church alone. He, in fact, has rejected Israel because they rejected his son at a point in time. That is a very prevalent view. And so uh, the Old Testament is taught more from the viewpoint of what we can learn from the character studies that are in it. But the nature of Israel's past, present, and future isn't important. I could tell you right now, as a Bible teacher, nothing could be further from the biblical truth. From my point of view, Israel is critical in the great story of the scripture, in the great plan of salvation, and in God's plans for the future. Like I said, it's a key to understanding the past, present, and future described in the word of God. So in light of this passage that we've begun to get into about Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist, and in light of the times in which we are living as well, so many people asking me questions, what about Israel today? What about what's happening with Israel today? What's going to happen to Israel today? I want to talk with you about, well, what I would call eight essentials regarding Israel. So this is really not going to be an opening of the passage. It's really not even going to feel to you like most of my sermons do with the concept laid out and a movement of, of, over an essential truth. I'm going to give you a Bible study. And we're going to go all over the scriptures, old and new, and I'm going to touch on eight essentials about Israel. This might be something that you listen to more than once. That's why we have it online. So here we go. Don't worry if it all doesn't sink in. Don't worry if you get confused or turned around. Again, it's something that hasn't been taught. You may not have a lot of hooks in your mind to put this on. Others of you will say, you know, I always thought that was true. That's the way my Bible reads. Pastor, I'm so glad you're connecting this with that. I think some of you are going to have some aha moments too. Eight essentials about Israel. Here we go. First, they were and are a chosen people. That's not just a catchphrase that someone invented to talk about Israel. No, it is a biblical phrase. It talks about a biblical reality. In the Old Testament, as God called Israel into being, by the way, they are the only nation in history created by an act of God. The only nation. God said, I created you and called you out. And he said in the Old Testament, I chose you out of the nations. So you're distinct, you're unique. And I chose you not because you were stronger, not because you were larger, not because you were nobler. In fact, you're one of the smallest groupings of people. You're weak in terms of the other nations. And in fact, you're far from noble. You're stiff-necked. But I chose you. Now we know he chose them to demonstrate his grace and power. But Israel is, was and is a chosen people. Now where did their beginnings occur? Well, it began with Abraham 
Actually, a man named Abram, God renamed him after he had called him forth to be the, the, the prime, prime genitor of, of Israel as a race and a nation. In Genesis chapter 12, you can see the, the origins of this. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is Genesis 12:1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. That's an important phrase we'll come back to a number of times today, that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation. Israel created by a distinctive act of God. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. That's an important thing to remember too because there's no period to that promise. As you deal with Israel today, so will God deal with you. I will bless those who bless you, Abraham or Abram, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And look at this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel, a nation created by God and guaranteed that God would bless the whole world through that spindly little nation put together when God called a former idol worshiper from the heart of the Middle East, Abram, to go out on his own, and God created a nation out of nothing. Now how has the blessing promise come true? Well, I'll tell you, you're sitting here, and you're part of the evidence of the blessing that God has done to the whole world through Israel, because through God's, God's hand, two great things came out of Israel and have blessed the world. The first is the word of God. All the scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament you've got on your lap, all of those came through Israel and through the prophets of Israel. That's a blessing to the nations. But secondly, the Messiah that those great scriptures promised came in through the Lion of Israel and through the Lion of David, and he lived and died and rose and ascended, and he is the Savior of mankind. There is no greater blessing than Messiah coming through your nation. Now, in addition to saying, your nation I'm going to create, through you I'm going to bless the world, and I'm going to keep you uh, into the future, we also know that God made three covenants with Israel. I don't have the time in this message to go through those in detail. What's a covenant? It's another word for a commitment. God made three commitments to Israel as a nation over the year, early years of their existence. The first is called the Abrahamic Covenant, and we see it here in Genesis 12. He committed to be their God and called them to be his people. He committed to bring his blessings of the word of God and Messiah through them to the nations, and he has kept that covenant. That's because it's an unconditional covenant. God said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it through you. Part of that, by the way, and there's a number of places in Genesis, Genesis 15 and 17, and other places where he goes into more detail, part of that covenant he made to Abraham was to give Israel a land of their own. And that land, he said, I believe in Genesis 15, will be yours forever, a forever possession. You wonder about what the conflict is over the land of Israel today. Well, it's a geopolitical conflict from the point of view of a lot of people, but in, in terms of what the Bible says, it's a conflict over a divine promise. God has said this land will be for the people of Israel. It's a factor even in the headlines this morning. 
So his first commitment was the Abrahamic, to be their God, to do works of blessing through them, and to give them their land. Second is the Davidic uh, covenant. This was given later in the history of Israel to King David, the greatest king of Israel. And David, after wanting to build a temple for for the presence of God, was denied that privilege by by God. But God gave him a greater privilege. And God said, there's going to be a temple yet future in which one of your own descendants is going to sit on the throne and his throne will last forever. 2 Samuel in chapter 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 he says when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That was established, that was talking about Solomon who immediately followed him and then God leaps into the far future and I will establish the throne of his kingdom pardon me forever other places in scripture throughout the prophets highlight that the king the kingdom that of David would never have an end it would be forever look at verse uh, 16 going down further and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me that's called the Davidic covenant and that was unconditional too God said I'm going to do this David you're going to pass on but I'm going to make sure that somebody who comes from your line is going to sit on your throne and there's going to be a kingdom coming yet future far greater than your own and the one who sits on that throne will be eternal and that throne will last forever well who was Jesus when the blind men heard he was coming by they called out son of David and they were right Jesus according to the physical line he was born in and the hereditary line he was born in was a son of David He's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. Soon the Father will put all the nations under his feet and he will reign forever and ever, a world without end. Can I get an amen? And so this promise will be fulfilled by God too, but it was a promise to Israel. Israel is going to be a part of that future kingdom and something I've taught you many times called the millennial kingdom. On earth for a thousand years, Jerusalem will be rebuilt in a way we can never imagine and all the nations will flow to it and there the kingdom of David will move throughout throughout the future of eternity. So the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. God said, I'm going to do this. I'm not counting on your behavior, Israel. I'm going to do this. The Davidic covenant, unconditional as well. Now I said there were three, three commitments. The third was the covenant of the law or a moral covenant. And this is talked about throughout the Old Testament. God gave the, the commandments through Moses and then further commandments to Moses for the nation. And at the end of uh, the regathering of the people before they went into the promised land, Finally, in Deuteronomy 28, God reiterates all the commandments he gave to the nation. And he says, I want to be your king, and I want you to obey my moral law. And if you obey it, there will be blessings. If you disobey it, there will be curses. And so that was a conditional conditional covenant. That was how God wanted them to live because you see, he had two purposes for Israel during their early days. The one was for them to be a witness to the other nations of what a godly people looked like, what people that obeyed God's laws looked like because all the nations around them were, were pagan and heathen and totally corrupt and idol worshipers. He wanted Israel to be a witness so that they would even cause some of the nations to ask about the truths of what God said in his word. 
That's the first thing they were supposed to do. The second thing is they were supposed to wait. Wait for who? The Messiah that was to come. Pictured in all of their sacrifices and all of their offerings and all that God had taught them. They were to witness to the world about the truth of God and wait for the Messiah to come. He said, you're to be a holy nation. So the first thing you need to know about Israel is that they were a chosen people. Very unique, ultimately unique in world history. Wouldn't you agree? Well, now we get to the story. Second, you need to learn that they were also, from the beginning, a resistant people, weren't they? It's interesting, when they were finally come to be called Israel was the name that the nation would bear after Jacob, one of their forefathers. They were given a name, Israel. Do you know what Israel means? One who contends with God. One who fights with God, who wrestles with God, and that typifies the spirit of Israel all through its history, even to today. One who contends with God. From the very beginning, after they came into the land, they began to fail God's calling. They failed to be witnesses. In fact, after a generation or two, they totally corrupted themselves with the idols of all the nations around them. They didn't witness. They got taken over. They failed in their witness. And then they began to rebel against all the laws of God. And so there was a cycle. You can see it in the book of Judges, but it's throughout the history of Israel for hundreds of years They would rebel against God's call. God would punish them in love. Then they would respond to the punishment after a period of time, and God would restore them, and then they would rebel again, right? And then God would have to go through the whole cycle, lovingly punishing them, chastising them. They'd wake up after a generation or two and be restored, and then they'd rebel with the next wicked king or the next opportunity. Now, how did God punish them? Well, he did that through consequences to their sin, just through the the consequences of it, the suffering of it, or sometimes he would put them into exile. He did did that to portions of Israel, and then he did it twice to to the nation as a whole over their history. But they never really seemed to learn or respond to him, even when they began to be restored to their land after the latest exile. Instead, They began to be religiously proud. And instead of letting their hearts break with repentance, they hardened their hearts and they decided to come up with their own version of the law. And they began to come up with a religious system that highlighted outward obedience but kind of winked at moral moral obedience. And they came up with their own way of thinking they satisfied God. This was led by a group of people in the last part of Israel's history called the Pharisees. that name familiar? The Pharisees created a system of law-keeping and religion that they deceived the people into believing if you kept enough of these laws, followed enough of these procedures, that God would be satisfied with you and you'd be accepted into heaven. And so they began not to look for a savior from their sin. They just began to keep their laws and they began to look for what we could call a political savior, somebody who would take them out from under the boot of Rome. Because when Jesus came, Israel was under the domination of Rome and had been for well over 100 years. So that helps you understand the next part 
of their story. Because it brings us to the New Testament era. This resistant people then became a rejecting people. This will help you understand how to tie the Gospels to your Old Testament. They were called to love God and to wait for his Messiah. They got to a point where they were so filled with sin that they didn't even look for Messiah anymore. They were satisfied that they could keep the law well enough on their own, and they became very secularized. And instead, they wanted political deliverance from Rome. Into that steps the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see that they became a rejecting people. What did they reject? Well, not what, who. They rejected Jesus, didn't they? Jesus comes onto the scene. And from the very beginnings of his life, through the prophecies of his birth, the miracles of his birth, his upbringing, where he was born, how he was born, to whom he was born, all of those fulfilled prophecy. And then he bursts on the scene as John the Baptist, fulfilling prophecy, is, 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 is his predecessor, sets the stage for all of Israel. They all should have known who Jesus was, but they reject this teaching. And then miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, Jesus fulfills all prophecy and all righteousness. And he proclaims who he is as the Son of Man and the Messiah. And he talks to them about their sin. And he exposes the fact that they could never keep the law well enough to to be in the presence of the Father. But no, they needed a Messiah to pay the ransom for their sin and that he was going to do that on the cross. And he did it for three long years. And over that period of time, the Pharisees and others ginned up such opposition to Jesus that at the height of it, the nation rejected him. In Matthew chapter 12, you can see that happen. In Matthew chapter 12, the rejection of Jesus was very, very clear. In Matthew chapter 12, if you can look at it with me, this is where the entire tide turns in the gospel readings. Jesus, in in the last year of his ministry, preaches to them and again presents himself as their Messiah and exposes their sin. In Matthew 12, 14... The Bible says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And we know that the Pharisees soon took all the people with him, didn't they? So that the people gathered under the portico of Pilate and called out, crucify him. The Pharisees went even went so far in verse 24 of Matthew 12 as saying that Jesus was demonic and that the miracles were demonic. You, get, you can't get any lower or more hateful toward God than calling his own son demonic. Bible scholars believe that Matthew 12 is the hinge upon which the Gospels turn and upon which history turned. They rejected Jesus. And that rejection would come to its height outside Pilate's portico when they called out, crucify him. Now this, I want you to listen carefully for the next few minutes, is where a lot of Bible teaching turns. And you can, in my opinion, make a a right turn or a wrong turn. Bible teachers over the years have looked at the rejection of Jesus and they've, they've, they've debated over the question, was that rejection permanent or temporary? And from whose point of view? Their question is, okay, Israel rejected God's son. They actually called him demonic. They called for his crucifixion. They rejected the mercies of God on its face. Did God reject them? And did he reject them permanently or temporarily? Well, we can take a look at chapter 23 and see some troubling language. 
Matthew 23, in the last few days of his ministry, as he's heading into Jerusalem for the last time, Jesus appears to reject Israel. Matthew 23, 37. He laments over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets of whom he was one and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. So he's making Israel accountable for rejecting him. There's no lack of clarity about that. Next verse, see, your house is left to you desolate. Elsewhere he talked about this as prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, the destruction of the temple, and the scattering of Israel from their city and from their land into the nations as judgment. Let me ask you, did that happen? Yes, it did. I've taught you it happened 40 years later in A.D. 70 when the legions of Titus, the Roman general, walked up to Jerusalem, put a siege against it, leveled the city, leveled the temple, burned it to the ground, and, and banished the Jews throughout the kingdom, the, the Roman Empire. Everything Jesus prophesied did come true. Now, Bible scholars at that point say that's when some, some Bible scholars, who I believe are taking a wrong turn, say that's when God was done with Israel. They rejected him and his son in the deepest way possible. They crucified the Lord of glory, and now God is done with them. But is that really true? Is that really true? Let me describe the three views, and I... I give some attribution to Jeff Kinley, a Bible scholar from Dallas Seminary, who talks a lot about this. Uh, this is where it's going to get wonky. So, you know, just get closer to the person next to you so they can elbow you awake. <laughs> As scholars look at the question, is God done with Israel or not? I'm going to give you the three views. The first is called replacement theology. You can already figure out what that teaches that God has replaced Israel totally. Replacement theology teaches that the church has replaced Israel and that all the promises that God ever made to Israel are now conferred onto the church. God decided to kind of wipe away his original idea and go with a new idea called the church after the day of Pentecost, called us. This view does not hold that the Jews are still God's chosen people or that God has any specific future plans for Israel. They're an afterthought of history. Whatever is happening with Israel today, it's just like what's happening to Burma today, or whatever Burma is called these days. They're just another nation, a small nation. Eight million people is all. Nothing matters about Israel. They're just a troublesome nuisance on the political stage. So that's replacement theology. Covenant theology teaches that the church is not a replacement. It's a continuation of Israel. It's sort of a combination of the first view with a view that's not quite as intense. It's very complicated to explain, but the only way to come to either of these views, in my opinion, is to allegorize much of Scripture. These are the, the I'm just going to be transparent with you. In my opinion, as a Bible teacher, these are the two wrong turns you could take. 
in Matthew 23. To, do, to take these two positions, you have to ignore vast sweeps of the word of God, vast sweeps of the prophets, both major and minor, vast elements of prophecy in the Old Testament and in the New, vast elements of your New Testament as well, the book of Revelation being the chief view. You would have to either ignore them or come up with spiritual meanings to all of these sections of Scripture and ignore all the unconditional prophecies and both of those unconditional covenants that I told you God made to Israel. He said, I'm going to give you a land in the future and nothing's going to stop me. Well, what about replacement theologians? They say none of that matters anymore. When Israel returned in 1948 to a large portion of its land, they shrugged their shoulders and said, huh, how about that? Whereas I, I would have looked at it and said, Hallelujah! God is on the move, getting ready to fulfill one of his great covenants. Replacement theology and covenant theology view end-time prophecies as allegory, as symbolic. You know what happens when you say, well, it's just symbolic. The next question is, well, what do the symbols mean? And the only honest answer can be, well, we don't know. It can mean whatever you think it means. And believe me, when you take a look at how many interpretations that these folks have of the Bible, your head will spin because it does mean whatever anybody wants it to mean. And so what that means is you, as a Bible student, can no longer read your Bible with any sense of confidence. Now, if those are the two wrong turns, what do I believe is the right turn? My, my belief is based on the fact that I believe the Bible should be consistently interpreted literally. In the normal way language works. I don't demand that something that doesn't fit my point of view is simply symbolism. I look at it and say, what does the Bible say? When the plain sense of the Bible makes clear sense, don't seek any other sense. Or you're going to end up with nonsense. I just added that part. <laughs> And that's what's going on. If you take a look at the Bible from the literal way of interpreting it in the normal sense of what language means in its context, I think the Bible teaches that God is working two distinct programs. He's continuing his covenant promises to Israel and can, he's going to fulfill every promise he made and he's also developed something called the church. All these unconditional promises are going to be fulfilled. In fact, what's happening in Israel today, I think, is part of prophetic truth. Now, now when you look at this, I mean, that my view squares with all of Scripture, and it uses a consistent way of interpreting Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That's what I put, hang my hat on when I look at this. Both groups have a part in God's plan. He doesn't undo his commitments and his promises. Prophetically speaking, there are large sections of Scripture that very clearly describe that in the final days, Israel is going to reemerge as a nation. Did you know that every single Old Testament prophet except one promises that Israel is going to be reborn as a nation in the future? The only one that doesn't is Jonah. And we understand the story was different there. It wasn't about Israel, it was about Nineveh. Every other prophet said Israel was going to have a future. How can you deny that Israel is going to be part of the future? 
Isaiah and Jeremiah, vast amounts of those two great prophets, great prophetic detail about the Israel of the future, both in, in coming history and in the millennial kingdom. The book of Revelation, supported by Daniel the prophet, clearly demonstrate that the tribulation itself is going to be a time when God puts his focus back on Israel. You can't make sense of the prophecies of Daniel and the book of Revelation if you don't believe that. You just have to say, I don't know. Well, why would Jesus make a promise in the book of Revelation? There's a blessing for every one of you who reads and understands the book of Revelation. How can he promise a blessing to you to understand the book of Revelation and then say, by the way, you won't be able to make head nor tail of it? That's not, that doesn't make any sense. No, the Bible tells us that God's focus is going to be on the church in this age, but in the age to come, in the years to come, he's going to shift back his focus to Israel in the tribulation, and he's going to bring tribulation upon them so that they repent and turn back to him in that 70th week of Daniel. By the way, the tribulation, in particular the last half of it, is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Because Israel's in the midst of it. It's not the, it's some, by the way, it's not called the time of the church's trouble. I'm giving you that as a freebie. That means the church won't be there. If, if, if Israel has no part in God's plan, why are there 144,000 Jewish evangelists in the heart of the book of Revelation? Hmm? Why are there two great Jewish witnesses raised up by God to go around the world and preach the gospel so that millions turn to Christ and they're Jewish? Why is all the events in the period of the tribulation, particularly going from Revelation 12 onward, events that focus on Israel and Jerusalem and the Temple Mount? How can you understand that if you don't believe Israel has a future, if you believe Israel is just a, a point in the past? Revelation 12 shows that the main purpose of the tribulation in the future is going to turn on God's plan for his chosen people. And of course, Revelation 20 talks about a thousand-year millennial kingdom in which Israel receives its land and in which the Davidic throne is filled by Jesus Christ himself. None of that makes sense if you've thrown Israel into the garbage can. And of course, the future of eternity. You know, people say, well, well, eternity, we always think of it as just being about the church. Well, you know what? The new Jerusalem is going to be a real Jewish place. I hate to, hate to break, get used to liking matzo balls. That's what I'm telling you right now. And some great kreplak. That's chicken soup with meaning. Yeah. It's going to be called the new Jerusalem. Did you know that there are going to be 12 gates made out of solid pearl, each guarded by an angel? And those gates are going to be named after 12 tribes of Israel. If God's done with Israel, he better hire a new architect. That's all I'm telling you, folks. Got the wrong plans. Why would he build eternity on something in the dustbin of the past? By the way, there'll be 12 beautiful foundations. I just read about the New Jerusalem the other day and just praised God. 12 foundations three on a side, and they'll be named after the 12 apostles who were all Jewish. Thank you. I think I've made my point, but I'm just going to go through a few places in Scripture. Romans chapter 11, please. Romans chapter 11. Paul was Jewish. 
you think? He answered this criticism or this whole idea in Romans 11. He says, I ask then, Romans 11.1, 1, has God rejected his people? There's the theoretical question. By no means. In the Greek, that means by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Go down a little further to chapter, verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Is God doing something new in the church? He's doing something additional in the church. And even that doesn't really correctly describe it. Yes, Israel came under the discipline of God after they rejected the Lord Jesus. And they've been put into a, what the Bible calls a temporary hardening. Verse uh, 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion be? Paul is saying God is disciplining them for now, but they'll be fully included again in the future. Go down to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Notice, God hardened their hearts because they wanted to harden their hearts. They rejected Jesus. God let them have their desires for a period of time. And he began to sweep people into the church through the Gentile nations, through all the non-Jewish places. But that is partial, partial in two ways. Partial in that it's not complete and God is going to turn the heart of Israel again to his son in the time of the future. And partial in the sense that uh, it's partial in time. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's too much there to explain, but all of history is included in that verse from, from the day of Pentecost through when Jesus comes back. But he's saying they will have a part in God's future program. They're hardened for now. But oh, there will be a remnant. There are Jewish people coming to Jesus today. In fact, there are more and more of them coming today. Look at Israel and One for Israel and all the great websites that talk about the revival going on in Israel today. And that's a preparation for the time of the tribulation when under all that great suffering, thousands of Jews are going to come to Jesus in the end times. It's a marvelous thing. You see, I believe that God cannot reject them because of his character. He made promises to them. And he will not go back on his own promises because they were unconditional, weren't they? You see, if God could turn his back on Israel, you know what? I worry that he would turn his back on me. Because, you see, God made unconditional promises to me through the cross of Jesus and my standing in grace. If he decided to reject Israel, who's to say he couldn't decide to turn his back on his gospel promises to me? But he didn't, and he won't. And he also has a prophetic commitment. He said in Jeremiah 33, no time to turn there, but he said, I will turn my back on Israel when I stop the sun and the moon from their cycles. In other words, I never will. So there are different views on this, but I take the view that God is temporarily working through the church and Israel is temporarily hardened. So what they see God doing among Gentiles will actually make them jealous to know God 
But in the end, they will turn to him in great, great revival. It's a marvelous thing to think about. And I'm going to take you back to Matthew for a second. Matthew 23, remember that's the place where I said you can take a wrong turn or a right turn? If you just read through verse 38, it would look like God has judged Israel completely. Your house is left to you desolate. But then there's verse 39. Between verse 38 and AD 70 and verse 39, so far there's been almost 2,000 years of history. Because verse 39 talks about when Jesus comes again. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is going to come in the name of the Lord? The Lord Jesus in the name of the Father. And Jesus is making a prediction in that verse. You're going to be under judgment and discipline now, Israel. But when I come back to this earth someday in the future, Revelation 19, when you see me, you will turn to me and you will be saved. And you know what the Bible says? That's exactly what's going to happen. I'll show you in a minute. But Zechariah chapter 12 says, when he comes back in glory, the Jews that are living on the earth at that time will turn and they'll see him ready to deliver them and they'll see the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn and a spirit of grace will be poured on them and they will turn to Jesus. That's why Paul said, all Israel will be saved. The ones that are alive at the end. Don't get lost in all the details I've just spent the last 10 minutes wonking you with. (laughs) Just remember, God keeps his promises and he will keep his promises to Israel. He has not rejected them. Now we're going to jet stream through the last five. (laughs) So they became a rejecting people in the ministry of Jesus and pretty much since that time have continued to reject Messiah. But the Bible also said they would become a reunited people. Remember, in AD 70, Rome came in, burned Jerusalem, burned the temple, scattered Jews all over the diaspora, all over the Roman Empire, and they remained scattered from AD 70 all the way until 1948. And then what I think, I told you last week, is the greatest event in human history since Pentecost, when God started working in the church. 1948, what every Old Testament prophet except Jonah prophesied came true. Israel was reborn in a day. May 15th, 1948. May 14th, 1948. I'll tell you what, that's an astounding, astounding event. It's required by biblical prophecy, defied by human history. Nobody believed it could happen, but it happened in one day. And Israel is now standing today. I'm telling you, that's an amazing thing. Multiple wars conducted by their enemies to take out Israel. Multiple wars. The first started within weeks of their establishment as a nation in 1948. Each of those wars has ended, in my opinion, through miraculous means. Read about the history of Israel and the wars since 48. You'll be amazed. Currently, the world is looking at a conflict that has enveloped Israel. It's Israel's longest war so far since 1948. Everybody looks at this and says, well, what do you make of it? And how do you, how do you, how do you look at this? Do you take a side? 
Well, I belong to the kingdom of God more than the kingdom of any country. And I'm allegiant to the gospel. So my side is the gospel side. I believe there's a greater supernatural war than the territorial war. I believe that both Jews and Palestinians and Arabs need Jesus as Messiah. And that's what I'm praying happens on both sides of this conflict. I have mercy and compassion on both sides of this conflict. I desire for them to see the God of my life in both sides of this conflict. However, I will not make any moral equivalence between a terror act and what, more, what Israel is doing. No, just as this country made no moral equivalence when it was attacked in its own borders in a bloody terror act, this country responded, any country has the right to. But many people are asking, boy, there's, there's war on two, if you count the West Bank, three fronts, potentially. How's Israel going to make it with all the hatred that, that's risen up in the world in the last, last several months against them? And Is Israel going to survive? I'll tell you what, if all the prophecies I've just talked to you about are true, they have to survive. Take that as a little comfort when you see the impossibility of their situation. Because you see, God has built prophetic history around a restored Israel. The Bible, some experts say that Israel is the clock of prophecy, the timepiece. Jerusalem is the hour hand, and the Temple Mount is the second hand. All of what Bible the Bible talks about in the time of the tribulation can't occur unless Israel is in the land. And in fact, the temple gets rebuilt. The Bible says that in Thessalonians and Daniel. All of this is happening according to the mighty plans of the mighty God. So they are now, even though they've resisted the gospel, they're a, a, a reunited people in their land now, and it's beautiful. We go on now to, to number five, though. Soon they will once again become a chastised people. They are reunited in Israel, in their land, since 1948, but they are what the Bible says they would be in Ezekiel 36 to 37. They are united, but in, they're in unbelief. Israel today is an unbelieving nation in terms of believing in Jesus as Messiah. They believe, some of them believe in the Old Testament. Most Jews in Israel are secular and atheistic. They're proud materialists. There are some Jews that believe in the Old Testament and there are some conservative Jews that really believe in it. But they're in unbelief today. And when the tribulation period begins, God is going to have to chastise them greatly through the suffering that they in particular will undergo in the seven years of the tribulation, particularly the last three and a half. You see, the rapture is going to occur for us. Then the rise of the Antichrist will come quickly after that. He will strike a false peace treaty with Israel. He'll deceive them according to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. And they'll be deceived into making a deal with the devil, literally. In fact, they're so deceived that many of them will think that the Antichrist is their political messiah. And they'll make a deal with the devil because it will bring peace to their borders. And that peace will last for three and a half years. It'll be such a, a, a remarkable peace that Israel will be allowed in some miraculous way. I know there's issues with the Temple Mount and everything else, but the Bible says that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. 
in the first three and a half years of the tribulation and sacrifices will be made there and the temple offerings will be made there. It's going to be remarkable. But then, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.4, at the three and a half year mark, the Antichrist is going to show his true colors. He will turn on Israel and he will turn on the temple and he will put himself in the midst of the temple and declare that he is God Almighty, the God of gods. You know, profane the temple. And Israel at that point will come to its senses and realize they've made a deal with the devil. And even they in their secular minds will not bow to that man. And that will begin a great conflict between the Antichrist and Israel that will roll for three and a half years. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, the next truth comes comes and that is that they will become more than a chastised people under the tribulation they will number six become a persecuted people revelation 12 and verse 17 talks about them being pursued by the antichrist they will flee and be pursued for three and a half years under this terrible persecution two-thirds of the jewish people will die At the end of that time, according to Matthew 24, the Antichrist is going to have such hatred against the Jewish people and biblical believers around the world because those are the two groups of people that will not bow to him and take the mark. That the Antichrist is going to gather his armies around Jerusalem once again for one final onslaught on the Jewish people, on Jerusalem itself, and on the house of God. Just as is prophesied in Matthew 24. And the persecution of the Jewish people will reach its great height. And then we will see number seven. They will finally become a returning people. Returning to what? No, not what, but who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 says that he will arrive and he will defeat the armies of Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. And the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 12 and beginning at verse 8. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of Israel shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now go to chapter 13 and verse one. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. I forgot verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on Jesus, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus says that when he finally returns in visible glory, Israel will become finally a returning people. They'll finally see him for who he really was all along. And his prophecy in Matthew 23 will be fulfilled. You will see me and you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, oh, you're under temporary discipline, but oh, when when I finally return, you'll love me with all your hearts. A work of God's great grace. 
And what Paul prophesied, which is a mystery, how can all Israel be saved? Well, then it will be. Every remaining Jew on planet Earth who has survived that tribulation will come to Messiah. And finally, they will then become the last, which is a restored people. God will keep those promises that he made ages ago. The covenants will be kept. He'll renew the earth after he judges the nations, right after Jesus returns. He'll restore Jerusalem to a glory that the world has never seen it in. It'll be in its place in Israel, but Israel and Jerusalem will become the center of the whole world. The Bible says the nations will stream to it. And for a thousand years, there will be a throne upon which sits the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. The land will be restored. Israel will finally have every inch of the land promised and it will be beautiful and verdant and fruitful and astonishing because the curse will have been reversed. Israel will proclaim the greatness of the Messiah for a thousand years and the nations will come to it. And Abraham's covenants and David's covenants will be fulfilled because my God keeps his promises. But then you know what? It'll get better. After a thousand years, God says, this is good, but it's not great. I'm going to remake everything. I'm going to make a brand new heaven and a brand new earth and a brand new, new, new Jerusalem. (laughs) And I'll settle it down on the new planet and it'll be beyond description. And 12 gates for the 12 tribes will be there and 12 foundations for the 12 Jewish apostles will be there. And the, 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 the people of Israel will be united with God's church. We're not separate. We are both beautiful ideas of a saving God. And you and I will join the Jewish people into an eternity that will roll on world without end. Can I get in? Amen. Israel, a chosen people, a wandering people who will one day come home. You see, God isn't done with Israel. He hasn't cast them off. Which, and I bring it back down to my original point as I conclude, all of this is why Antichrist is going to hate Israel so much. I've often thought, as I've read through Revelation, Antichrist wants to rule the world. That was Satan's passion. He wanted the nations. Last time I counted them up, there are currently 195 nations. And there are 8 billion people on the planet. That's what he's hungry to dominate. But why, in the midst of the tribulation, does his attention suddenly get drawn to one little nation out of all 195. There's 8 million people in Israel. Do the math, that's one one one-thousandth of the world's population. Why would Antichrist be suddenly caught up with murderous rage against a small sliver of humanity? I can only think of two reasons. 
One is what I've told you before when I've spoken about Israel in the past. Antichrist will hate what God loves. He's going to hate the word of God. Israel birthed the word of God. He's going to hate the son of God. And he hates the chosen of God. He can't help himself. And the Antichrist will be demonically indwelled. But secondly, I believe the Antichrist is going to hate Israel because he fears what God plans. And I've just told you that Christ's return is linked to the return of Israel to him. If there is no Israel, there won't be any Israel to return to Jesus. And the devil in his broken mind may believe that if he can exterminate every Jew, there won't be any left to turn to Messiah when he comes and he can frustrate the very return of the king. He's that deceived. But I do know that my Bible tells me to do two things. It says pray for the return of Jesus and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. After today, I hope you can